This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. It's Zoomer Radio's Theater of the Mind with Frank Proctor. Open your mind as we fill your head with amazing thrills, chills, <laughs> and laughs. Theater of the Mind, the best love programs from radio's golden age, only on Zoomer Radio. Now, here is your master storyteller, Frank Proctor. Well, thank you, and welcome to the show. Two personal favorites of mine tonight. At the half hour, we'll hear from Jack Benny and all the gang, but right now it's off to the far north for another adventure with Sergeant Preston of the Northwest Mounted Police in a show that was first broadcast in 1949. Now, as gunshots echo across the windswept, snow-covered reaches of the wild northwest, Quaker Puff Wheat and Quaker Puff Rice, the breakfast cereal shot from guns... Present the challenge of the Yukon. It's Yukon King, swiftest and strongest lead dog of the Northwest, blazing the trail for Sergeant Preston of the Northwest Mounted Police in his relentless pursuit of lawbreakers. On King, run, you huskies! Gold, gold discovered in the Yukon. A stampede to the Klondike in the wild race for riches. Back to the days of the gold rush. With Quaker Puff Wheat, and Quaker Puff Rice bringing you the adventures of Sergeant Preston and his wonder dog Yukon King as they meet the challenge of the Yukon. Say, get set. In just a few minutes, you're going to hear something terrific. Quaker puffed wheat and Quaker puffed rice, the swell-tasting, ready-to-serve breakfast cereal shot from guns, are making a special offer to you listeners. We know you fellas and girls like dogs, so keep listening. We've a big surprise for every single one of you. Sergeant Preston had been summoned to the office of Inspector Maynard at Mounted Headquarters in Dawson City. The great dog King rested at his master's feet as they listened to the inspector saying, Sergeant, have you ever heard of a crook called a sparrow? I certainly have, sir. From what they say, he's just about the slickest crook in the States. He may soon be the slickest crook in the territory. You mean he's coming to the Yukon, sir? That's right, Sergeant. They think the Sparrow has his eye on a New York millionaire named J. Hamilton Rudge. This man Rudge coming to the Yukon, too? Yes. He was planning to sail from Seattle soon after this letter was written. I see. And when he arrives, the Sparrow will probably be hovering somewhere close by. It seems to be the general opinion, Sergeant. Now then, Rudge will dock at Skagway and travel overland to Whitehorse. Whitehorse, he'll embark on the Yukon Queen, sailing downriver to Dawson. The Yukon Queen, eh? It's the last boat of the season. Right, Sergeant. So, if the Sparrow really is after Rudge's bankroll, he's pretty sure to be on that boat. I take it that I'm to be on board, too, sir? You are, Sergeant, but not in uniform. I want you to travel as an ordinary passenger in civilian clothes. Well, what about King, sir? Can he come along? Well, Sergeant, I don't know about that. Oh, go ahead. Take him. <laughs> Thank you, sir. Now, uh... <laughs> 
I want you to protect this Rudge fellow, Sergeant, without revealing yourself, of course. And at the same time, I want you to see if you can't get a line on the sparrow. Ten days later, Sergeant Preston stood at the rail of the Yukon Queen as the steamer pulled away from the landing at Whitehorse. The Mountie was dressed in civilian clothes, and at his side was the great dog, King. A few feet away stood another passenger, an elderly man with side whiskers and gold eyeglasses. Sergeant Preston introduced himself as Mr. Smith. Smith, um, I suppose there are quite a few Smiths up here in the Yukon. My card, sir. Well, thank you. J. Hamilton Rudge, New York City. Mm. I'm glad to know you, Mr. Rudge. You're a long way from home. Well, I'm on my way to Dawson on mining business. Confound it all. What's the matter? That woman coming this way, she's been hounding me ever since I left Seattle. Oh, there you are, dear Mr. Rudge. How do you do? What a simply beautiful dog. What breed is he? Why, he's an Alaskan Malamute, Miss... Uh... Oh, perhaps Mr. Rudge will be good enough to introduce us. Miss Laverne, may I present Mr. Smith? How do you do? It is so reassuring to meet a, a strong man when one is traveling alone in a rough and unsettled country like the Yukon. <laughs> You'll have to excuse me. I must get back This your first trip to the territory, Miss Laverne? My very first. The manager of the music hall simply begged me to come to Dawson. I take it you're in the theatrical business. Ah, oh, yes, I'm an actress, Mr. Smith. And no doubt you'll recognize my full name when I tell you I'm Cleo Laverne. Well, I, I'm afraid I'm not familiar with the stage. Oh. Uh, well, it's such a thrilling experience coming to a wild new country like this. Seeing all these pine trees and mountains and... Uh, Everything. Tell me, is it true that it gets very cold up here? I've seen it hit 70 below. Oh, surely you're joking. Don't worry, it won't get that cold for a few months yet. The looks of the sky, though, I'd say it's going to snow before morning. Oh, dear me. Perhaps I'd better go and unpack my furs. I'll see you at dinner, Mr. Smith. And I'll see you again, too, doggy. <laughs> Cleo Laverne walked toward the door of her cabin, which was located only a few yards from the point where Sergeant Preston and King were standing. A moment later, the great dog growled and sprang erect at the sound of a muffled scream. It came from Miss Laverne's cabin. Come on, boy. Come in. What's wrong, Miss Laverne? Over there, in my bunk. A man. He... Is he dead? About as dead as a man can get with a knife through his heart. Oh, Mr. Smith, I... I think I'm going to faint. Try to keep a grip on yourself, Miss Laverne. Tell me what happened. I, I merely came in the cabin and started to take off my coat and hat. And then I noticed him lying there. You know who he is? I've never seen him before in my life. We'd better go notify the captain. Minutes later, Captain Goodall, skipper of the Yukon Queen, eyed the two passengers sternly as they returned to Cleo Laverne's cabin. Is this your cabin, Miss Laverne? Yes, Captain. It's this one right here. Well, where's the corpse? Right over there what? on the... Oh, it's gone. Gone? Oh. Yes. If it was ever there... It was there, all right. I suppose it got up and walked away. All by itself. <laughs> There's not even a blood stain on the bunk. The corpse was lying face down with a knife in its back. It happens there was very little blood. Mr. Smith, I don't take kindly to hoaxes. Now, good day to you. Oh, Mr. Smith, what a horrible situation. 
What on earth are we going to do? I think perhaps I can convince Captain Goodall that we're not joking. You stay here with Miss Laverne, boy. I'll go up and talk to the captain again. At sight of the sergeant, Captain Goodall's face turned red with anger. I've already told you, Mr. Smith, that passengers are not allowed on the navigation bridge. It's important I talk to you where we can't be overheard by the other passengers. <laughs> what is it this time? Another corpse? Take a look at these credentials, please. Uh, the holder of these credentials is traveling on official police business and is to be given every possible assistance. Signed, Inspector Maynard, Northwest Mounted Police. Well, if you're a Mountie, where's your uniform? One of the passengers on this ship is a cook from the States called the Sparrow. I'm traveling in civilian clothing in hope of discovering his or her identity. Well, I guess I owe you an apology. No need to apologize. Now then, Captain, about that corpse. The man was middle-aged, very swarthy, and had a black mustache. Does that description sound familiar? No, I can't say that it does. How many passengers are you carrying this trip? Five, counting you and Miss LeVar. And how many cabins are there? Ten. Each passenger is separated from the person next to him by an empty cabin. The murderer certainly didn't throw the corpse overboard in broad daylight. So the chances are it's in one of those ten cabins. Right. We'll make a search at once. Sergeant Preston and Captain Goodall searched the five empty cabins and also the dining cabin at the end of the passageway, but found no trace of the missing corpse. Guess we'll have to try the occupied cabins. You say there were three other passengers aboard besides Miss Laverne and myself. That's right. Here's Mr. Mason's cabin right here. Yeah, what is it? May we come in? Sure, come ahead. Make yourself right at home. Mr. Mason, this is Mr. Smith of Dawson City. Glad to know you, Smith. Pete Mason's the name. Up here to hunt gold, Mr. Mason? No, no, not gold. It's stories I'm after. Oh, you're a writer? Newspaper man, Seattle Post Intelligencer. Mr. Mason, we're looking for a corpse. A corpse? (laughs) Well, Captain, I may look pretty green around the gills, but I'm not dead yet. (laughs) I'm afraid this is serious, Mr. Mason. Another passenger discovered a dead man in her cabin a short time ago. When she and Mr. Smith came up on the bridge to tell me about it, the corpse disappeared. Well, it didn't float in here, Captain, if that's what you're thinking. You mind if we look around? Not at all. Look under my bunk, look in the closet, look anywhere you please. I'll be only too happy if you can turn up a dead man. What a headline that would make. Post reporter finds corpse in cabin. Yeah, I guess you're right. There's no dead man around here. Sorry we disturbed you, Mr. Mason. Come along, Mr. Smith. Hey, not so fast, Captain. You're not leaving me out of this. Oh, very well. Uh, This next cabin we're coming to belongs to a Mr. Hobart. Who is it? It's Captain Goodall. I'd like to speak to you. Well? May we come in? All of you? Sorry. Should have introduced you. Mr. Leo Hobart, this is Mr. Mason of Seattle. How do you do? How do you do? Mr. Smith of Dawson City. I uh, didn't catch the name of your city, Mr. Hobart. Where'd you say you were from? I didn't say. Mr. Hobart, you're here on a matter of murder. Murder? That's right. A dead man was discovered in one of... What was that? Sounded like Mr. Rudge. Come on, we'd better investigate. We'll continue our story in just a moment. (laughs) 
In just a moment, Quaker Puffed Wheat and Quaker Puffed Rice bring you that big surprise. But first, here is Sergeant Preston. As you boys and girls know, my closest friend and companion is my dog, King. Right, fellow? <coughs> Naturally, I feel that everyone should love and understand dogs. And you should recognize and know the different kinds of breeds. Dogs are truly man's best friend. Fellas and girls, we're sure you agree with Sergeant Preston. That's why today we're making you listeners a very special offer. Listen. Right now, grocers have special new surprise packages of Quaker puffed wheat and Quaker puffed rice. Inside these packages, you get two different challenge of the Yukon dog picture cards. These two dog picture cards inside each package are yours at no extra cost. No box tops to send in, no waiting. These cards are like regular trading cards. They're handy size, stiff back, have the same shiny, glossy finish as game cards. These beautiful cards feature actual photographs of real dogs in full color. They're true to life. They're new. And you can get them only with Quaker Puffed Rice and Quaker Puffed Wheat. Now get this. Wheat and Rice Shot from Guns are offering 35 different cards in all. That's 35 famous breeds of dogs. Each package contains two different dog cards, and they're yours at no extra cost. Think of all the different kinds of dogs you can collect. Favorite dogs you know, like Cocker Spaniel and St. Bernard, or strange breeds like Saluki or Otterhound. Best of all, there's Sergeant Preston's Wonder Dog, Yukon King. Yes, you can get an exciting trading card of King, true to life. The real king himself in color. What's more, Sergeant Preston gives you a description of each dog on the back of every card. He tells you what the dog is like, plus many facts you should know about him. Yes, these amazing cards help you to recognize and know about the different kinds of dogs. They give you valuable information about working dogs, sporting dogs, show dogs. They let you in on which kinds are good watchdogs or learn tricks easily. And mind you... These cards feature real dogs, many champions of their breed. Imagine owning an official collection like this. A set that includes the world's biggest dog, the world's smallest dog, the world's fastest dog. You find these different dog cards in packages of Quaker puffed wheat and Quaker puffed rice. And don't forget, you get not one, but two of these dog picture cards in each package. There's no waiting, no delay, no extra cost. They're at your grocer's now. Hurry, collect them. Save, swap, trade them. Start now while supply lasts. Remember, you get these official Challenge of the Yukon dog picture cards only with delicious Quaker puffed wheat and Quaker puffed rice. And you get not one, but two cards in each package. Don't delay. Start collecting today. Now to continue our story. Pete Mason, a Seattle newspaper man, joined Sergeant Preston and Captain Goodall in their search for a missing corpse aboard the steamer Yukon Queen. The three men were about to search the cabin of another passenger named Leo Hobart when suddenly a call for help rang out. What was that? Sounded like Mr. Rudge. Come on, we'd better investigate. Mr. Rudge. Mr. Rudge, are, are you all right? Hey, most certainly I'm not all right. I've been robbed, sir. Aboard your ship and by heaven, Calm sir. down, Mr. Rudge. Hey. Tell us what was stolen. I'll tell you what was stolen. A jewel box containing two sets of diamond studs and over $10,000 in cash. You sure you had the box when you came aboard? Of course I'm sure. It was right here in my suitcase not more than a half an hour ago. Mr. Rudge, 
We'll find that jewel box if I have to go over this ship with a fine-tooth comb. Yes. Beginning right now, we're going to search every inch of every cabin on the Yukon Queen. King rejoined his master when the search party arrived at the cabin of Cleo Laverne. The great dog was puzzled. He wondered why his master had not given him the job of tracking down whatever was missing. A short time later, the party approached Sergeant Preston's own cabin. Well, Smith, we've searched every cabin but yours. Yeah, mine even got a second going over. That doesn't mean we suspect you, Mr. Mason. The first time we searched your cabin, we were looking for a corpse. A dead body won't fit into a suitcase or a drawer, but a jewel box might. Sure, sure, I realize that. Oh, is this your cabin, Smith? This is it. What's the matter with that dog? Offhand, I couldn't say. Suppose you open your luggage, Mr. Smith, while we try the drawers in the bunk. All right, Captain. Well, that jewel box doesn't seem to be anywhere around here either. What about that closet over there? Goodness, the dog is scratching at the closet door. I'll take a look. Oh! Holy smoke! A dead man. Yes. The corpse that was taken for Miss Laverne's cabin. He certainly wasn't one of the passengers. He must have sneaked aboard while we were tied up at Whitehorse. Any of you recognize him? Yeah, I do. His name is Trigger Joe Fernandez. That nickname sounds as though he might have been a crook. He was one of the worst gunmen in the States. How do you happen to know so much about him? Newspaper men get to know lots of things, Mr. Rudge. Like, for instance, the fact that Trigger Joe was gunning for another crook named the Sparrow. You're well informed, Mr. Mason. Look, Smith, let's stop playing games and tell these people who you really are. Suppose you tell them if you're so sure of yourself. You're Sergeant Preston of the Northwest Mounted Police, and that dog of yours is Yukon King. Was that a guess? It was a cinch. In case you don't know it, Sergeant, we've heard about you and that dog of yours even way down in Seattle. Well, if uh, he's a Mountie, why is he operating in plain clothes? I bet I can answer that one too, Hobart. It's because he's on the trail of that crook I mentioned a second ago, the one named the Sparrow. You mean this, this Sparrow, whatever you call him, is somewhere on board this boat? I'll go farther than that. I'll bet he's standing in this cabin right now. But oh. Isn't that right, Sergeant? You're doing the talking, Mason. Oh, Sergeant Preston. If what Mr. Mason says is true, we may all be murdered in our sleep. I demand protection. Very well. King can stay in your cabin tonight to guard you if you like. Well, that's all very fine. But what about my jewel box? We'll find that box if I have to search this ship from stem to stern. All of you except Sergeant Preston, go to your cabins. Stay there until the search is completed. That's an order. A thorough search was made of the entire ship, but no trace of the missing jewel box could be found. That night... Sergeant Preston was awakened by a gentle tapping at the door of his cabin. Hmm? Yes, what is it? Who's there? That's fine. I'm almost sure I heard someone at the door. Maybe I better take a look. No one in the passageway. I must have been mistaken. The sergeant was about to close the door when he noticed a slip of paper lying at his feet. Hmm. It's a note. Let's see what it says. If you want to know the identity of the sparrow, meet me in the dining cabin in five minutes. No signature. It's likely to be a trick, but I'd better investigate just the same. The sergeant dressed hastily and went down the passageway to the dining cabin. 
As he pushed open the door, he paused and listened intently for the sound of human breathing. Hearing nothing, he stepped across the threshold. And at that moment, the butt of a pistol came crashing down on his head. A moment later, the rear door of the dining cabin opened. Outside in the darkness, snow was falling, and a harsh wind was lashing the waters of the Yukon. No one saw or heard the unconscious body of the sergeant being dragged across the deck to the stern rail of the ship. Meanwhile, the great dog King was scratching frantically at the door of Cleo Laverne's cabin. He had caught the scent of his master as Sergeant Preston passed by the door on his way to the dining cabin. And a moment later, the dog's keen ears had heard a groan and the sound of a falling body. Instinctively, King knew that his master was in deadly peril. Again and again, the great husky reared up on his hind legs and sought to turn the knob, but the door was bolted. Finally, King trotted over to the bunk where Cleo Laverne lay sleeping and tugged at the blankets. What is it? What is the matter? King, is something wrong? Oh, so that's it. I just want to go out. Well, I suppose the sooner I let you out, the sooner I'll get back to sleep. King dashed down the passageway to the dining cabin. The door was ajar, and King pushed it open easily with his nose. Inside, he caught the scent of his master clinging close to the floor. King followed the scent to the rear door of the dining cabin. The door was closed, but King worked it open with his paws and raced across the open deck toward the stern of the ship. Without hesitation, he leaped the rail and plunged into the swirling waters below. The cold water had shocked Sergeant Preston back to consciousness, but he was still weak and dazed, and the chilling effect of the icy water had almost paralyzed his muscles. The great dog and his master struck out desperately for the riverbank, but the current was swift and treacherous. As they neared land, Sergeant Preston's last ounce of strength finally gave out. It's no use, King. I, I, I can't hold up any longer. Seizing his master's coat in his powerful jaws, King struggled on through the raging torrent. Minutes later, he dragged his half-conscious burden ashore. Look at old King. Once again, I hold my life to you, fella. Yes, I better get up and get moving before I freeze to death. Yes, boy, I see it too. Looks like a lighted cabin. Let's head for it. At the cabin, Sergeant Preston borrowed dry clothes and a sled and dog team. Without further delay, he pushed along the coast to Selkirk. The Yukon Queen was tied up to the landing at Selkirk when Sergeant Preston and King went aboard the following morning. The sergeant had changed his clothes at the local Mountie post and was now wearing the red-coated uniform of the force. Captain Goodall greeted him with a look of open-mouthed astonishment. Am I, am I seeing ghosts? Or are you Sergeant Preston? I'm no ghost, Captain, and neither is King. But man alive, what happened to you? We thought you'd fallen overboard during the night. Fallen's not quite the word for it. I was slugged and then thrown overboard. What? But how in the world did you get to ashore? I didn't think anyone could stay alive in that water last night. I'd be a dead man right now, Captain, if King hadn't jumped after me and pulled me ashore. 
Luckily, it was near a cabin, and I was able to borrow a sled to get to Selkirk. No wonder they say King is worth his weight in gold. All the passengers still aboard? They are. I've been holding them till the law could arrive to investigate the murder. And suppose you ask them all to assemble in the dining cabin. I think it's about time we clipped the sparrow's wings. Ten minutes later, Sergeant Preston faced the assembled passengers in the dining cabin. Sergeant, aren't you going to tell us what happened to you? Yes, Mr. Mason, I am. Last night, a note was slipped under my door. The note said that if I'd meet the sender in five minutes, he or she would tell me the identity of the sparrow. When I went to keep the rendezvous, I was slugged and thrown overboard. Luckily, King jumped after me and dragged me ashore. When you got this note telling you to come to the dining cabin... Did you know then who had sent it? I had a few suspicions, Mr. Rudds, that was all. Now I know for sure. Well, don't keep us in suspense, Sergeant. Tell us who it was. Before I make any accusations, I'd better tell my reasons. In the first place, there's not much doubt that it was the Sparrow who killed Trigger Joe Fernandez. Are you sure of that, Sergeant? The Sparrow's the only person aboard who had any motive for killing him. We know Fernandez was out to get the Sparrow. He probably sneaked aboard at Whitehorse and lay in wait in the Sparrow's cabin. When the Sparrow came aboard, Fernandez probably tried to kill him. Instead, he himself ended up with a knife through his heart. That makes sense, all right. But why pull that disappearing act with a corpse? It probably figured it would confuse us. And too, it may have tickled his perverted sense of humor. Well, you still haven't told us who the Sparrow is. The Sparrow had to be one of you four people. Oh. Miss Cleo Laverne, Mr. Pete Mason... Mr. Leo Hobart, or Mr. J. Hamilton Rudd. Ridiculous. Last night, I definitely eliminated Miss Laverne as a suspect. Me? Oh, Sergeant. Because King was standing guard over her, unless King had been killed or drugged himself, she never could have carried out an attack on me. As a matter of fact, I was sound asleep until King woke me up. And I was pretty sure Mr. Hobart wasn't a sparrow either, because I remembered having seen him in Dawson City. Last night, when I was on my way to Selkirk here, I remembered who he was. And, um... Who am I? You're Lewis Howard of the Howard Mining Syndicate. Well, I, I suppose you've got some mining deal yeah. underway and you're traveling incognito to steal a march on your competitors. Well, looks like you've guessed my guilty secret, uh, Sergeant. That left two possible suspects. Mr. Mason and Mr. Rudge. And how did you decide between us? The thing that decided me was the theft of your jewel box. Well, you knew I couldn't be the Sparrow because I wouldn't rob myself. On the contrary, Mr. Rudge, I decided you were the Sparrow because a while ago, you mentioned that the note that was slipped under my door said to come to the dining cabin. No one on the ship knew where the rendezvous took place except myself and the person who slugged me. Hey, you pretty smart, Marty. Ah! Well, it's not going to do you a bit of good. You'd better put away that gun, Sparrow. Save your sermons, Redcoat. Get back against the wall, all of you. Don't try any funny stuff when I step out of this door. It's no use, Sparrow. Don't come any closer, Preston. I'll put a bullet right between your eyes. You're not going to shoot me or anyone else. You see, I thought you might try to make a break, so I posted King right outside that door. Take him, King! All right, I'll take that gun. All right, King. On guard. Now then, Sparrow, on your feet. You're under arrest in the name of the Queen. All right, buddy. Hey, I guess you've got me. But if it hadn't been for that door... You'd have killed me last night, and you'd have gotten away just now. You're right, Sparrow. But fortunately, King's always on the job when I need him. Aren't you, fella? Yes, boy. Thanks to you, this case is closed. These 
radio dramas, a feature of the challenge of the Yukon Incorporated, are created and produced by George W. Trendle, directed by Fred Flowerday, and supervised by Charles D. Livingston. The part of Sergeant Preston is played by Paul Sutton. They are brought to you every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday at the same time by Quaker Puffed Wheat and Quaker Puffed Rice, the breakfast cereal shot from guns. Listen Friday when Sergeant Preston and Yukon King meet the challenge of the Yukon in the case of the hard-hearted hermit. I knew that Amos Benbow was not as hard-hearted as he pretended to be, so I thought it'd be all right to leave his granddaughter with him. I thought she'd be safe. I didn't suspect that bank robbers would choose his home as a hideout. That was when the trouble began. Be sure to hear this exciting adventure Friday. Stay tuned for the Jack Benny Show next on Theater of the Mind. Time now for Jack Benny. Well, hello. Come right in. Oh, George, we've got company. This is Bill Goodwin. Speaking for Lever Brothers, makers of Swan, the new white floating soap that's pure as fine Castiles. Well, it's Tuesday night again. Time for another pleasant visit with George Burns and Gracie Allen, our guests, Jack Benny, Jimmy Cash, Felix Mills and his orchestra, and the Swan Tet. And now, meet the people who live in the Burns house, George and Gracie. Well, it's morning in the Burns home, and George is just coming downstairs to leave for the office. Good morning, dear. Good morning, darling. Look what the postman just brought you. A present from Pat O'Brien. Oh. I bet Pat is sorry he started that rumor about me being a juggler. Open the package, dear. All right. I met him yesterday, and I told him a few jokes. I guess that convinced him I was a comedian. <laughs> what, uh, what are you laughing about? What's in the package? A set of Indian clubs. <laughs> <laughs> Next time I get my hands on that oh, Irishman, cheer believe up, me. George. Before long, everybody will know that you're not a juggler. They'll know you for what you really are. And, uh, what, uh, what is that? Well, a singer, of course. Oh, oh that. Oh, sure. I-, I wrote to our sponsor and suggested that you sing on our program every week. That's the twelfth time. Yeah, but this time he answered. Say, that's a good sign. Open the letter. Mm, wait till Bing Crosby hears you sing. He'll retire and start to raise a family. <laughs> Oh, Gracie, I'm not better than Crosby. As good, maybe, but, uh, well, <laughs> open the letter. What does the sponsor say? Believe me, there are plenty of other big programs that would like to have George Burns as a singer. Gracie, the letter, open it. Well? George, what are some of the other big programs? <laughs> Turn me down again, huh? Oh, never mind, dear. You're a great singer. Even Bill Goodwin said, with, with a voice like yours, you ought to sing in our big army show. Army show? Yes, it's in charge of some officer named Major Bose. <laughs> I'll forget it. <clears throat> I better get along to the office. Yeah, I'll ride down on the bus with you. I have an appointment at the beauty shop. Okay, let's go. No way. Uh, before we leave, won't you sing something just for me? Oh, Grace. Oh, please, dear. Just one little glorious burst of melody. Well, all right. 
just a gigolo. Everywhere I go, people know the part I'm playing. Oh, you're wonderful. I won't be happy until your voice leaves the whole world the way it leaves me, weak and limp. Thanks. Oh, come on, I'm due at the beauty shop in five minutes. What'll it be today, Mrs. Burns? A shampoo and set? Oh, yes, and I'm kind of in a hurry, Josie. Well, I'll do my best, Mrs. Burns, but we're shorthanded, and I have to work on the customer in the next booth, too. The old horse face, I hope he chokes. He? You mean there's a man in the next booth? Well, sort of a man. Josie, where are you? Oh, that's him. I wish he'd go sit on a hot curling iron. Josie, come back here. This finger wave of mine stinks. <laughs> Did you hear me? This finger wave stinks. All right, all right. Leave your hair on the table and I'll do it over again. No, Josie. I'm sure I know that man. What's his name? I'm not allowed to tell, Mrs. Burns. The old goat scared the newspapers might find out he goes to a beauty shop. Oh, come on, Josie. Give me a little hint. Well, he's the stingiest man in Hollywood. Oh, stingy, huh? And how. When he gets a mud pack, we have to save the mud for him so he can put it in his victory garden. <laughs> Funny. I can't get it from that. Give me another hint. Well, let's see. Um, uh, he used to drive an old broken-down Maxwell. Uh, no, it's no use. I can't guess who it is. <laughs> You're not missing anything. He's tried to date every girl in town, and nobody will go out with him. Oh. Oh, hello, Jack. How's Mary? Gracie, is that you? Well, yeah, come on into my booth, Jack. Oh, sure, sure. <laughs> hello. Hello, Gracie. I... Guess you're surprised to see me here. Well, yes, I am. Well, you see, Mary lost her bobby pin the last time she was here. I, I dropped by to look for it. <laughs> you know what the bobby pin situation is terrible. Oh, sure. I bet you thought I was here to get a beauty treatment. <laughs> Gracie, you sound like you don't believe me. Maybe that's because I don't. <laughs> well, if I'm lying, may something terrible happen to Phil Harris. <laughs> oh, uh, Mr. Benny. Yes? Here's your mud. I wrapped it up for you. <laughs> oh, well. Phil always played too loud anyway. <laughs> well, Jack Benny in a beauty shop. <laughs> Wait till the girls hear this. Now, Gracie, look. Listen, you must oh, promise girls, me. I brought your swan soap. Oh, hello, Grace. Oh, hello, Bill. Why, Jack Benny, what are you doing here? Well, I'll tell you, Bill. He's well, a... Bill Goodwin in a beauty shop. <laughs> Wait till the girls hear this, huh, Gracie? Wait a minute. I just came over to bring some swan soap. Well, Bill, I... Oh, Bill Goodwin has beauty treatments. That's really something to tell the girls, huh, Gracie? Hey, look. The operators here use swan soap. Not only because it's so mild for the customer's complexion, but because that same mildness makes it great at home. For the dishes, light laundry, or for bathing the baby. Swan's the new white floating soap that's four swell soaps in one. Well, Bill, well, Bill Goodwin in a beauty shop. <laughs> really, I, I thought that curly hair wasn't natural. Yeah. Now, wait a minute. 
No girl in this shop has ever laid a hand on me. Except, of course, after working hours. <laughs> oh. What are you doing here, Benny? Oh, well, I'll tell you, Bill. Jack is... Oh, Bill Goodwin and the beauty. <laughs> manicures and everything. I am not. My hands just happen to look gorgeous because I always wash my dishes with Swan. Oh. Swan is great for washing the dishes. Gives you loads of suds. Suds that are so mild and gentle your hands don't get that rough red dish panty look. Well, Bill... Bill! Yeah. <laughs> well, good one in a beauty shop. And I have his eyebrows plucked. That's something, isn't it? Now, look, Jack. I told you, I just came here to deliver some swan soap. Swan's a great wartime buy. What I want to know is, what's Jack Benny doing here? Well, I'll tell you, Bill. Well, Bill, go... Oh, nuts. Goodbye. Gracie, Gracie, look, for heaven's sake, don't let out my secret. I mean, I don't want everyone I meet to know I've been taking beauty treatment. Oh, don't worry, Jack. They'll never suspect it. <laughs> well, anyway, don't you tell. You know, if the newspapers get hold of it, I'm cooked. And you know how the gang would kid me on my program. Oh, yeah, your program. Uh, Jack, you don't want this to get in the papers, huh? No, I I'll do anything to keep it out, Gracie, anything. Oh, good. Uh, starting Sunday, Jack, George will sing on your program. <laughs> George? Yes. Sing? Uh-huh. Gracie, I've heard prettier noises come out of Carmen Lombardo. Yeah. <laughs> I see. Well, excuse me, Jack, I'm going to telephone a little news item to the paper. Wait, wait, oh, you mean George Bird? Yes. Oh, George, your husband. Yes. Oh, old sugar throw. Sure. Oh. Oh, well, I, I don't suppose it would hurt if George sang on my program once. Well, I was thinking of having him sing every week. No, no, no. No, well, I'll call the paper. But, Gracie, this is blackmail. <laughs> I know. Cute of me, huh? <laughs> yeah, yeah, cute, cute. joins our popular tenor, Jimmy Cash, in an enchanting ballad from the top musical show of the year, Oklahoma. Oh, what a beautiful morning. Oh, what a beautiful day. I got a beautiful feeling. Everything's going my way. There's a bright golden haze on the meadow. There's a bright golden haze on the meadow. Corn is as high as an elephant's eye. And it looks like it's climbing clear up to the sky. Oh, what a beautiful morning. Oh, what a beautiful day. I got a beautiful
the Burns home now. Jack Benny is pleading with Gracie to change her mind as they wait for George to come home from the office. But, but why does it have to be my program, Gracie? I mean, why don't you have George sing on Eddie Cantor's program? Well, because I didn't catch Eddie Cantor in a beauty shop with his toupee and Carla's. <laughs> hey, there must be some other show he can go on. Maybe, maybe Gabriel Heater needs a singer. <laughs> Or Mr. Anthony. I mean, why don't you let George be his problem? Oh, you, you amaze me. How can Jack Benny, who has the greatest talent in the world, fail to recognize George's talent? Oh, oh, oh do you really think I have the greatest talent in the world? Well, certainly. Rochester, Dennis Day, Mary Livingston. <laughs> oh, oh, I see. And now I've got a big thrill for you. I have your program for next Sunday night all planned. You have? Yes. It'll be the new and entertaining Jack Benny program featuring George Burns, California's answer to Frank Sinatra. I... Look, I, I can't do it, Gracie. I mean, I can't allow George to sing. Well, shall I call the papers and tell them about the beauty shop? He sings, he sings. Ah. <laughs> now, listen to the way I have the program all worked out. You're the star, so of course you come out first. Thank you. Your line is... Hello. And then George comes out for his opening number. I just say hello. Well, we could make it hello, everybody. No, no, I don't want to hog the whole show. <laughs> well, then George sings his second number, and back you come again. Good. To announce George's next number. I hope my throat stands up. And then right after that, Dennis Day comes in. Dennis Day? Yes. Well, doesn't George do all the singing? Well, yes, but I thought you might want a few laughs on the program. Oh, yeah, I'll be glad to have them. I will, yes. And then as soon as George finishes his next number, I'll come... Now, wait a minute, wait a minute. Gracie, George can't sing the whole program. I mean, he's not that good. I know music, you know, I'm a musician. You are? Well, I play the violin, don't I? <laughs> well, don't I? <laughs> You're cute. <laughs> Look, Gracie, all that I'm... Why, Jack Benny. Hello, George. How's the juggling game? I'm not a juggler. Why doesn't everybody stop with that? Oh, now, dear, don't get excited. Jack has some marvelous news for you. Tell him, Jack. But Jack. I think I'll go call the papers. All right, all right. I'll tell him. Oh, good. I'll run out and make some coffee. Well, Jack, what is it you want to tell me? Well... First, first, I'd like to remind you that you're my dearest friend, George. And you're my dearest friend, Jack. I mean, you're even more than a friend to me, George. You're even more than a friend to me, Jack. I love you. I love you like a brother, George. I love you like a brother, Jack. I mean, I'd never do anything to hurt you, George. Thanks. Wait a minute, I'll try that again. <laughs> I'd never do anything to hurt you, George. I said thanks. George, look, I mean, I wouldn't louse you up if you had a comedy program. If I had a comedy program. <laughs> I mean, look, you're my dearest look, friend. Look, Jack, wh what's the news, I Jack? mean, you're even more than the, a friend the, of me. The news, Jack. Look, what's the news? What pals we've always been, uh, The news, Jack. You have some news for me. Look, remember the time in Cincinnati when you were broke and I gave you $10? It was Cleveland, Jack, and I gave you $20. <laughs> 
Well, I have the state right. It was Ohio. <laughs> yeah, the news, Jack. What's this news you have for me? Well, yes. Well, dear, did Jack tell you the news? No, not yet. He's been he's been leading up to it by the way of Cleveland and Cincinnati. <laughs> Jack. I'll bet Little Abner won't be the funniest thing in the paper tomorrow. <laughs> uh, oh, all right. George, look, I want you to sing on my radio program. Why, Jack Benny. Now, now, don't be really? hasty, George. I mean, don't, don't jump at it. Uh, think it over for the duration. <laughs> I don't have to. I'll sing a dozen songs for you, pal, and it won't cost you a cent. For free? Sure. No, no, no. George, no, I, I can't think of it that way. Well, all right, then you can pay me. No, I can't think of it that way either. I know what's making Jack hesitate, dear. He hasn't heard you sing recently. Sing ain't Mr. Hayden for him. Sure, glad to. Well, sit down, Jack. No, I'll take it standing up. Well, come on, dear. No one to talk with all by myself. No one to walk with, I'm happy on the shelf. Hey, misbehaving, saving all my love off. Oh, baby, love for you, really saving love for you. <laughs> he doesn't juggle at all. <laughs> no. I know for certain you're the one I love. I'm through with flirting, it's you that I'm thinking of. Hey, misbehaving, saving all my love for. Oh, baby, my love for you. Jack, what makes you think he's a juggler? He must be. <laughs> Jackie Horner. In the corner, don't go nowhere And I don't care all your kisses that you gave me, baby Daddy, daddy, daddy I might be blood and guts, but that's just guts <laughs> I don't stay out late and I don't care to go I'm home about it, me and my radio Hey, misbehaving, saving all my love for you. Well, Jack? Gracie, call the newspaper. Time for Felix Mills and his orchestra. Tonight, from Felix's memory album, it's Honeysuckle Road.
Gracie, you know something? I got the impression that Jack Benny didn't like my singing. Oh, George, that's silly. Didn't you hear him tell me to call the newspapers? He wants to give them a big story about you. Yeah, but I noticed that while I was singing, he, he kind of turned green. Oh, well, of course, of course he turned green. You sang exactly like John McCormick. Oh, so that's what it well, was. Well, sure. Now, I'll go in and talk to Jack. You stay here and spray your precious little adenoid. Okay. From time to time and every time. Jack. Yeah? Well, naturally, you were joking before when you told me to call the newspapers, weren't you? Not me, Gracie. Look, I'd rather have everybody know I was in a beauty shop than have Sugar Throat smell up my program. <laughs> well, I'm warning you. I'll phone the paper. Phone them. This is my last warning, Jack. Go ahead. I'll phone the paper. Phone them. This is my last warning, Jack. Go ahead. I'll phone the paper. Phone them. This is my last warning, Jack. Go ahead. I'll phone the paper. For Pete's sake, phone them. No, Jack, no, I can't. I'm too fine, too decent. I can't stoop to blackmail when I see it isn't working. Now, now, please don't think I'm a heel, Gracie. I'm... Gee, I'm kind of animals, I'm fond of children, but I, I just don't like George's voice. Oh, you're fond of children, huh? I love them. <sighs> Poor little Junior. Poor little who? Junior. He'd be so proud if he knew that his daddy had sung on the Jack Benny program. Gracie, you mean... Yes. George and I are parents now. He's the father and I'm the mother. <laughs> Gee whiz, I, I can't believe it. How, when did it happen? Well, I don't remember exactly. We were so excited at the time. <laughs> well, I'll be darned. Good old George has a baby. It hardly seems possible. Yes. I was amazed when George told me. <laughs> I just can't get over it, Gracie. I'm so happy for you. So happy for George. Who does the kid look like? Like me. I'm so happy for the kid. <laughs> Say, could I, could I see him? I'm crazy about kids. Really, Jack? Oh, sure. I mean, many, many's the time I bought a bag of candy and blew up the bag to amuse a kid. <laughs> Imagine good old George, a father. Well, you can do something awfully nice for Junior. Let his father sing on your program. Gracie, I'm mad about children. No, that... please, Jack. The baby adores you. When you're on the air, he lies in his crib gurgling with his little foot in his mouth. When Fred Allen's on, he puts his foot in his ear. Gee, <laughs> what a smart little rascal. Oh, I know you'll do it for Junior. I can look in your sensitive blue eyes and tell that you won't disappoint him. They are blue, aren't they? Mm -hmm. <laughs> All right, George can sing one song just for the baby. Well, let him sing two songs. We're expecting another one. <laughs> really? Yes. Good old George. Did I hear somebody call me? No, we were talking about you. Gracie told me everything. Congratulations, George. You mean I can sing a song on your program? Yes, sir, you deserve it. Gracie tells me there's going to be another one. Well, two would be fine if it's all right with you. <laughs> well, why not? Have you picked out a name for the second one? Would you like Moon Glow? <laughs> Moon Glow Burns. Well, 
Crockett, won't that be just a little too corny? Oh, I don't think so, Jack. You know, while you were away, I took a few lessons from Crosby. <laughs> you did? Yes. Now, George, I know Jack's in a hurry. Yeah, yes, I'll be going. But, George, first, can I see the nursery? Well, Jack... The nursery? Hiya, what? folks. What goes on? Oh, Bill, am I glad to see you. Bill, I just heard the news. Now, why didn't you tell me that George and Gracie had yeah, a... Yeah, li- yes, Bill. Oh, why didn't you tell Jack what George and I had? Well, what did you have? An idea for you to announce Jack's program, and George sings at it. Huh? But I Oh, meant... well, that's a great idea, Jack. I'd be glad to. Now, wait a minute. I have an announcer, Don Wilson. Well, okay, you can have two announcers. Don Wilson is two announcers. (laughs) But Don can't announce your program, Jack. He doesn't know anything about Swan Soap. Swan Soap? Well, sure. He doesn't know that Swan is the new white floating soap that's four soaps in one. The soap for dishes, light laundry, bathing the baby, or for your hands and face. Don doesn't know that. Well, I could teach him. I mean, what am I saying? I don't sell soap. I... I sell grape nuts flakes. Well, but, but that's ridiculous, Jack. Can you bathe a baby with grape nuts flakes? Well, I wouldn't want to answer that until I've talked to my sponsor. <laughs> well, I can... They're very resourceful, you know. Well, I they can... They may be working on that right now. <laughs> well, I can tell you the doctors recommend Swan for bathing the baby. Swan is so mild it's kind even to a little baby's tender skin. Pure as fine Castiles, too, so you know it must be great for your complexion. Gee, bathing a baby. Do you ever bathe that little darling of yours, George? Don't be silly. We take showers. (laughs) Uh Uh-huh. He he means us. But the swan is great for bathing the baby. Oh, yes, and Gracie breaks it in two, so she can... Breaks it in two? Well, sure, Jack. Swan breaks in two, so you can use half in the kitchen for your dishes and light laundry and half in the bathroom for the baby or for your tub or shower. Oh, well, look, Bill, don't bother to tell me about Swan so because I'm just using George on my program, not you. You see, I'm only doing it for Junior. Junior? Well, yes, George. That's what Jack calls you because you're so much younger than Jack. <laughs> No, no, look, I mean the baby. The baby? Yeah, but yes, that's what he calls me because I'm so much younger than you. No, Gracie, look, I'm talking about your child. Child? Well, goodbye, Jack. See you at rehearsal Sunday. Wait a minute, wait a minute. Gracie, what does he mean, our child? Oh, dear. I knew there was something I forgot to tell you. <laughs> we haven't got a child. You... Well, so that's it, Gracie. Just to get George on my program, you invented a baby. Oh, no, I can't take credit for that. They were invented years ago. (laughs) Don't try to get out of it. I don't want to sing on the radio if I have to get on by tricks. Now apologize to Jack. I'm sorry, Jack. And don't ever do a thing like that again. I won't do. Ever, understand? Yes, dear. Come on, Jack, I'll walk you down to the corner. My goodness, George, what you go through with a (laughs) date... Hello? Hello, Fipper? This is Gracie. Oh, would you and Molly let George sing in your program next week? Yeah, I know you've got to sing it, but I thought you might do it for Junior. Yes, you see, we just had a baby. George and Grace will be right back. And I'm just going to be here long enough to remind you that the government needs your waste kitchen fats more than ever before. 
Now, I know sometimes it's a lot of trouble to render the extra fat you trim from meat and to strain all your waste fats from roasting and frying. But those waste fats are so urgently needed for making glycerin. And that glycerin is so necessary for making ammunition that I know you won't mind doing whatever you can. So don't forget, huh? Turn those waste fats into your butcher and keep turning them in. Well, here they are again, those ever-loving Burnses, George and Gracie. Well, George, I've got some wonderful news. Little McGee wants you to sing on his program. Really? Yes. And when he comes over to close the deal, will you sort of fold this napkin into a triangle? Why? Uh, well, for some silly reason, he thinks we have a baby. Again? Good night, Good night. Makers of Swan, the new white protein soap, join George and Gracie in inviting you to tune into your Columbia station again next week, same time. Don't forget, George Burns and Gracie Allen, CBS next Tuesday night. And now till next week, this is Bill Goodwin saying, Well, I, Swan, how about you? Good night, everybody. Thank you for listening. Tomorrow night, it's Dark Fantasy, followed by Edgar Bergen and Charlie McCarthy. Thanks to Joel Schoenwell and Paul Stringer for technical support. The executive producer for Theater of the Mind is Moses Neimer. I'm Frank Proctor. Have a great night. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.